Welcome to Canada's most irreverent talk show. This is the Andrew Lawton Show, brought to you by True North. Hello, everyone. Welcome along Canada's most irreverent talk show here on True North. A little bit less cool of a day than yesterday. So I've ditched the sweater. I had uh, one colleague of mine who I will not name for the sake of his or her dignity, who was like getting mad that I was complaining about how cold the air conditioner was when this person doesn't have a central air conditioning. So I did not wish to start off yesterday's show by going on about air conditioner privilege, which I believe is right up there with white privilege in the summer months. But uh, we will stand up for all of you, whether you have central air conditioning or not. In, in all honesty, yesterday, I wished I didn't because I just couldn't get it to stop blowing. See, there we go. I'm asserting my air conditioning privilege once again. In any case, it is good to talk to you. We are going to delve into the wonderful world of digital ID uh, very shortly. You may recall last week we started off talking about this, and I think uh, in quite a significant way exposed the glaring issues with this thing that's being uh, pushed upon us in the name of convenience. And uh, the other aspect of this that I will point out, and I, I think this is very important, is that Everyone says that the privacy issue is really no biggie. When the government talks about the digital ID program, they say, oh, yeah, of course, it'll respect privacy. But we are going to talk to Anne Kabukian, who is not uh, one of these uh, raging right wing types like myself. She is a very measured and intelligent person. I mean, I try to be intelligent, but she's got the Ph.D. She's done more to back up her intelligence in the academic sphere anyway. And she has grave concerns about the privacy implications of digital ID. So we're going to talk to Anne in uh, just about uh, 10 minutes or so on this program. And also later on, I want to delve into the media layoffs taking place at Bell. And if you're expecting me to uh, jump up and down and cheer and spike the football in the end zone, there we go. I actually did a correct sports analogy right there. Spiking the football in the end zone. See, I know rugby very well. Uh, I... <laughs> People don't know I'm joking when I do that. By like my own brother says, you know, you have to stop doing it because I can never tell if you're serious or not. Anyway, I'm going to talk about this a little bit later on, and I'm not actually going to uh, spike the football, uh, so to speak. I'm not going to celebrate, but I am going to talk about what this means for the state of media. And I think there is a lot uh, to unpack there. So we'll do that a little bit later on in the show. But let's start off by talking about everyone's, uh, speaking of intelligence, Marco Mendicino. I <laughs> joked a, a few weeks ago that uh, when on the firearms file, when gun owners talk about 22, they're referring to a caliber. When Marco Mendicino uses 22, he's referring to his IQ, which I think is being a little bit generous there. Here's a guy who, by all accounts, had a decent career as a lawyer. And now that he's in politics, is just this like fumbling, flailing fool that seems to bungle every single file every single file he touches, whether it's being the public safety minister during the convoy, whether it's the firearms file, and now the corrections portfolio, where anyone who's over, I want to say 40, maybe even 35 in Canada, knows Paul Bernardo and Carla Homoka. They're household names in a way that they aren't for the younger generation. But certainly Marco Mendicino is a guy who knows the name Paul Bernardo or should have known it. But this is a guy, a serial rapist and murderer 
who of all the things in Canada that we can disagree about, I have yet to come across one single person that thinks Paul Bernardo is a decent guy. So uh, of all the things we disagree about, everyone can agree he's a dirtbag who should be a prime candidate for the death penalty if we have it, and if not, should be rotting behind bars for the rest of his miserable existence. And that was what was happening for uncontroversially since he was put away, what was it, uh, 20, well, probably pushing, no, 30 years ago now almost. And Paul Bernardo, though, this past month was transferred to medium security. Apparently, it was just a little bit too high security for what he needed down in Ontario. So they transferred him to a medium security facility within the Canadian penitentiary system. And all of a sudden, the government acts so surprised by this, like they don't understand how this happened on their watch. And the initial statement we saw from the Correctional Service of Canada was that the minister's office had no idea whatsoever that Bernardo was being transferred, they say. Uh, but then they sort of said, well, yeah, we can confirm that they did know and that we did tell them. And Marco Mendicino was this week left holding the bag. He had to come up with a way to explain how this uh, record that showed his office being looped in three months ago somehow didn't manage to get to him. So the I don't check my email excuse has become like the number one excuse for liberal cabinet ministers on a variety of scandals in the last few weeks. It's what Bill Blair has been using. It's what Harjit Sajjan has been using and all of the above. So the fascinating thing here, the fascinating thing is that this is like a defense that ministers think is legitimate. The I don't know what's happening in my own office defense, which is a far cry, whatever you thought of Stephen Harper from his approach, which was that the buck stops here and that ministers and the prime minister have to be accountable for what staffers do. So this idea of just blaming some lowly staffer doesn't really fly. So Marco Mendocino's office and his staff knew three months ago that Paul Bernardo was going to be transferred to medium security. Now, if you think that is a problem, which it seems like most people in this country do, then it's a problem that he didn't know about it, that his staff kept this from him. You may think it was just because they wanted him to be able to have that deniability that comes along with uh, being deliberately kept in the dark. So in response, he's come out and said, okay, well, I, I'm going to recommend a ministerial directive. That's what he's doing. It's a learning opportunity for all of us, a ministerial directive. And this ministerial directive, according to Mendicino, is apparently going to keep uh, all of this from happening again. He's saying here, let me see if I can pull it up again here. I had like a million channels open on my uh, computer and I missed the... Oh, maybe I didn't post it. Oh, there it is. Yeah, he's uh, pushed the statement forward here, and he says that uh, correctional services must re-examine its policies, so the policies are the problem, not him, to ensure victims' rights are guiding the decision-making process. Uh, CSC should inform victims of any transfer of inmates between maximum and medium security institutions, and the minister must formally and directly not be notified in advance of the transfer of any high-profile or dangerous offenders. Nowhere in that list of three things in this apparent ministerial directive does it prevent heinous, violent offenders like Bernardo from being downgraded to medium security. Nowhere does it actually prevent that from, being hap from happening. It doesn't even require that the minister sign off on it, which he could have said. He could have said the minister must not just be notified, but must approve it. So it's like he's almost trying, not almost, he's deliberately trying to prevent having to be accountable in the future on this. So all they have to do is inform victims. So correctional service will call up the family members of uh, Paul Bernardo's victim and say, 
Victims, plural, and say, hey, just wanted to let you know he's going into medium security. See ya. And they've done it. That's what Marco Mendicino thinks is appropriate, that the notification is the issue and not the actual treatment of heinous, violent offenders. Now, believe it or not, I am not one of... I, I, I like to think I'm a tough-on-crime person, but I also have a very nuanced view of it, and that I believe when we're talking about the majority of criminals who are eventually going to be released back into the world at some point, we need to talk about the way that we can get the best outcomes out of them. And I believe that may come through educating them. I believe that may come from finding alternatives to jail if jail is not the most appropriate venue for them. That does not apply here. We are not talking about a guy for whom a compassionate justice system is warranted or productive. It's a guy who anyone who's ever spoken to this man, reviewed him, assessed him, has said he shows zero remorse for his actions. The fact that Carla Homoka, who was just as complicit and in some ways more so than him, is out walking free with a real name looking after children is a shameful aspect of Canada's justice system. But at least we got Bernardo, right? And now even that is seen as apparently too harsh. We can't have him in maximum security. There are ministers in the past, uh, before the Trudeau government was in, for whom this would have been a resignation-worthy offense right here. But instead, Mendicino has taken his marching orders from Justin Trudeau, uh, and it is abundantly clear that all you need to do is just say, well, we'll all vow to do better in the future. We'll vow to do better in the future. It's everyone else's problem but mine. None of the things he put forward, by the way, would have prevented this from happening. And more importantly, none of these directives would have actually made him more responsible or accountable. It falls on the Correctional Service of Canada. It falls on his staff. So why is he not firing staff over this? Why is he not firing his staff, firing someone uh, if he takes this as seriously as he claims he does? Pierre Polyev, the leader of the Conservatives, has basically come out with a laundry list of reasons why he thinks Mendicino needs to resign over this. Take a look. This is not the first time Mr. Mendicino has lied to Canadians. I have a list. You need a list because it's hard to keep track. He lied saying that the police had asked him to bring in the Emergencies Act. They did not. He misled a federal judge by backdating documents. He admitted in committee that the RCMP was using spyware to gain information on Canadians. He lied that the Safe Third Country Agreement was working. He claimed it was impossible to close Roxham Road, something that has now happened. Um, he claimed that his amendments would not ban hunting rifles. And then later on, he had to admit that they did ban hunting rifles and reverse those amendments. He said that uh, the, RC, that the uh, CSIS report on Michael Chong's family being targeted by a former government did never left CSIS. We now know that the documents went from CSIS to the Prime Minister's National Security Advisor. He claimed there were no more Chinese-controlled police stations in Canada. Now we know there are at least two. And he lied about his knowledge that Paul Bernardo was being moved from a maximum security penitentiary to a medium security penitentiary, something that he has the power to stop. These are too many lies. It's one lie too many. It is time for Marco Mendicino to resign. I, I should warn you, I had read a summation of that a line before, and I hadn't actually watched the clip. 
And when I realized that I was throwing to a clip of a list of uh, evidence supporting Marco Medicino's incompetence, I was worried it might actually fill up the whole show, that uh, that was just going to be like a one hour long uh, list that just we had to just pick up on Friday's show. But uh, no, thankfully, we were able to keep it a little bit more condensed there. We didn't even need to play it at double speed. And I suggest if you were to dig into that, you'd probably find more reasons. But uh, literally, it's the reverse Midas touch. Any file he touches turns to absolute crap. So it's no surprise. I mean, if you are a uh, if you're a litigant in some way and you want to sue the government, I would find a way to sue Marco Mendicino because you'll probably manage to win uh, just by virtue of the fact that he'll get lost on the way to the courthouse or trip because he forgot to tie his shoes or something like that. And all of this is to say that Marco Mendicino right now has never once taken responsibility for any of it. It's always someone else's fault. That clip that I played during the Freedom Convoy protest is probably, this one I won't play because it's like six minutes and it's six minutes of having to listen to Marco Menachino, which uh, I believe in actually in some uh, undeveloped countries, they still use as torture in violation of the Geneva Convention. But the thing about it is that he came out and just made things up. He just made things up. He came out and said, oh, yes, there's a you know violent cell, people that want to do terrible things, and they're connected from Coots to Ottawa. And when journalists, to their credit, pushed back at him on this and said, well, what group, what people? Eventually, he walked back this claim of an organized militia-like group in Ottawa connected to the convoy to I've seen rhetoric on social media that is concerning. Again, it took six minutes to get from one to the other, but eventually he walked it back to just this unrecognizable point because that's what Marco Mendicino does. He just says stuff. But in this case, we are talking about surviving family members of Leslie Mahaffey and Kristen French who have been re-traumatized time and time again. Anytime Paul Bernardo comes up for air and is in the news because, oh, he's trying to get married behind bars or, oh, he's applying for parole again. And this process re-traumatizes them. And in that case, you know, the government always says, well, you know, the parole board tamped down on it. The prison system tamped down on it. Now they are re-traumatized by seeing this guy who ruined their lives, who took away the lives of their loved ones, and is evidently seen as unworthy of the maximum security treatment in Canadian prisons. This is what this family has to do. So anytime the government wants to say, like Mendicino does here, ooh, it's outraged by this, it's mad about this. No, you're not. Because if you were as outraged by this as you say you were, there would be some semblance of accountability. There'd be some semblance of responsibility. And you would not allow your government to maintain a policy over the criminal justice system that focuses on how quickly they can get people out on the streets rather than actually paying for their crimes. And I'm not talking about being punitive for the sake of punishing people. I'm talking about the lack of bail reform, which means that anytime you get a press release from a police department about someone they picked up who stabbed someone, who uh, committed some offense, who committed some sexual assault, uh, it is increasingly the case that they're telling you this person was out on bail. This person was out on bail. But no, if you're a law-abiding gun owner, you will get the arm of the state, the heavy arm of the state going after you every which way. If you want to own a old hunting rifle to go and do some plinking in the woods, rest assured you will be at the top 
of Marco Mendicino's and Justin Trudeau's radar. But if you want to get out on bail and sexually assault someone on a city bus, that is a-okay. If you want to commit uh, serial rape and murder and get transferred into medium security, that's all fine as well. Everything's hunky-dory. If they, if we want, if seriously, if we want the government to take what's happening to Paul Bernardo seriously, let's give him a firearms license. That's the only way that Marco Mendicino will care what he does. Absolutely shameful. We are going to be talking about digital ID in just a couple of moments' time with Dr. Ann Kavukian. I want to just, on the note of censorship, I know there's been a lot of hand-wringing by Heritage Minister Pablo Rodriguez about uh, C-18 and how Facebook's responding to it. And they're basically blocking access to news content from some people. And they're doing this in a way that I, I find is actually quite brilliant. And I, you know, I'm no, no secret to the fact that I've got some big issues with the big tech companies. But when it comes to government versus big tech, big government versus big tech, I tend to have a bit more sympathy for big tech. Not a lot, but a bit more. And the thing, because ultimately regulating big tech is about regulating tech users. So when government says we're regulating Twitter and Facebook, what they're really talking about is regulating the people who use Twitter and Facebook. And, and that's why I find these things are problematic. But Facebook, instead of having to pay up for the privilege of letting media outlets post their content to Facebook, which is what the government's trying to do in C18, the thing that's happening now is uh, Facebook is saying, all right, we're going to just try blocking it all together. So there are some users in Canada right now where if you want to go and link to a news article or uh, something like that, you will not be able to. And it's a good way for Facebook to expose, for Facebook to expose the, what I would say is a quite interesting dilemma here. Because on one hand, the government says, all right, we think you're stealing. And then when Facebook says, okay, we won't steal anymore, we won't steal, we won't post it. Uh, instead, what the government says is, oh, well, how dare you cut people off? News is vital. You're stopping the flow of information. And I'm like, well, hang on, which, which is the bad thing and which is the good thing? Uh, allowing this content or not allowing this content? So uh, what we see when big tech companies start to flex their censorship muscle, though, is that it happens in a way that is very ideologically driven. So a couple of weeks ago, I had Aaron Gunn on this show who has produced this new documentary called Canada is Dying, a tremendous look at the drug and opioid and I would just say crime crisis across Canada. And after getting 1.2 million views in just two weeks, YouTube has started censoring and blocking it. So th this is absolutely insane. And I have no idea what the basis of it is. It's still available, but you need to log in so you need to have an account and it also is labeled as violent. It's, they've put a label on it. So if you do try to watch it, you're actually going to find that you can't unless you're logged in. And this means that they're blocking distribution of it. So that meteoric rise, 1.2 million views and counting effectively gets halted. And the only way to access it is to seek it out. And I, I don't think they're doing this because of pressure from the liberals, but I do believe wholeheartedly that what's happening here is the liberal government's policies are going to result in more of this, of, of manipulating the algorithm so that only government-approved content is what you can see on your home screen. Only government-approved content is what gets fed to people through the almighty algorithm. And in this particular case, it doesn't matter that Canada is Dying is an original Canadian production. 
because it's not the right kind of Canadian content. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. It's not the right kind of Canadian content, so you know it's not going to get fed out to people the same way that it is supposed to. So, uh, you know, hopefully Aaron will be able to appeal that in my defense uh, anytime I've tried to go up against YouTube, I've not managed to succeed. I mean, we had like the My Pillow guy on. <laughs> I don't even want to say his name because I'm worried then this will get banned. But we had all. Oh, who cares? I think they changed their policy on this. We had like Mike Lindell on the show to talk about pillows and Christianity, and then we ended up getting that interview uh, flagged like weeks after the fact because it like violated the policy YouTube has on the My Pillow guy. Uh, which they may or may not have changed. I said we need to like get Mike Lindell on back to test if the policy had changed, but our administrator William uh, told me to go pound salt, so uh, take it up on take it up with him. Uh, we had a super chat from Austin Taylor, who I think isn't that a clothing store? I don't know if it was the store or some guy named Austin Taylor, uh, just uh, giving us fifty five dollars without any quant- uh, without any question or comment. So thank you very much for your support of independent media, Austin. Uh, Let's talk a little bit here about the media landscape in this country, because uh, we know that Bell has a huge, huge, huge round of layoffs that has been announced today. And it isn't just 1,300 jobs. It's also like whole radio stations, including the radio station in my neck of the woods that I used to do a weekly panel on, uh, CJBK. Uh, 1290, which is uh, quite a significant, uh, quite a significant radio station and has a, a great deal of history. And it has now shut down. Uh, just at 11, they flipped the switch and went off. And we'll talk about that a little bit later on because we do have uh, Ann Kavukian with us. And uh, just to bring you up to speed on the digital ID discussion we had last week, a lot of Canadian companies are saying digital ID is inevitable, it's coming. I read a, a piece from Interac that uh, was actually quite concerning, talking about it as though it's all positive, it's all sunshine and roses. Uh, it'll make obtaining a driver's license faster and easier because all you have to do is just go on and do this all on your phone and everything's going to be digital and all of that. And it's astonishing to me how much of the boosting of digital ID doesn't come with any warning or any caveat about some of the very real issues that will come up as far as accessibility and privacy are concerned. So I wanted to talk about this with Dr. Ann Kavukian, who is former, formerly the Information and Privacy Commissioner in Ontario and also is the head of the Privacy by Design Centre of Excellence at uh, what's now Toronto Metropolitan University or Ryerson for us old school types. Uh, Ann, it's good to talk to you again. Thanks for coming on today. A pleasure, Andrew. Thank you. So is it naivete when anyone who seems to be promoting digital ID does so by basically assuming that privacy is not going to be a concern? It's such nonsense because for digital ID, you need the highest level of security and privacy intertwined because the fishers and hackers are brilliant. They can gain access to so much information online. People are um, shuddering at the thought of potential third parties, unauthorized third parties gaining access to this information. And you see digital ID, it's just, 
it's an evolving technology. It's not firmly planted. So if you ask the government about it, they say, oh, we're going to build in the strongest security and privacy measures possible. Show me. I would say trust, but verify. In this case, I wouldn't even say trust because people are very concerned about it, understandably. I haven't seen anything from the government that says, here's what we're doing and here's what will prevent any third parties from gaining access to this, which is nonsense. And once they have your identity, they can do identity theft, they can do so much. I remember when I was privacy commissioner, people will come to me who are victims of identity theft and just say, oh my God, we're trying to, to prevent this, but we don't know what to do. They've got our identity that, you know, we've got all these claims that we're racking up all these charges and we have to pay and we, it wasn't us. So I always used to say to them, first thing you do, go to the police, file an occurrence report, something that validates your claim that your identity is stolen. And, and then I would try to help them. But under this model, everybody's identity would be online. The police couldn't handle it. it it's an evolving area. And the thought of losing your digital identity and trying to get it back, it's just, there are so many unauthorized third parties who would gain access to it. Yeah, I mean, I, I would look, uh, for to anyone that says it's no big deal, I would look no further than the vaccine passport scheme in, in which the government made a lot of the same claims, which is that, oh, no information's going to be stored. It's just you scan this QR code and it verifies it. But we saw in Alberta and Ontario, notably, data breaches of this, because in order to have some verification system, which any legitimate ID is going to have, there has to be some database in which some form of information is stored. Absolutely. It has to be retained somewhere, as you said, in a database somewhere. And obviously you try to protect the data, but I'm not kidding. When I tell you about the hackers these days, they're brilliant. So unless you go to great lengths to secure the data using non-conventional methods, um, not just trying to de-identify the data, which can usually be re-identified, uh, you have to think of all kinds of additional measures to take and obviously encryption would be needed end to end and all kinds of things. And then I would want it to be tested by the brilliant minds out there, like Bruce Schneier, brilliant cryptographer, etc. But none of that that I'm aware of is happening. Um, digital signed verifiable credentials are an evolving technology. It, these are very early days. So if anyone tells you, don't worry about it, it's a done deal, it's safe. Nonsense. Show me. And we have to have this kind of credential-based identity solution has to be demonstrated that it is truly superior to having a physical driver's license in your wallet, which may be a pain. You might lose it. You might need to get another one, but at least it's retained in terms of the potential for unauthorized access to it by third parties. Yeah, I, I think that's the critical part of it here. And, and I'm guilty of it in the sense that I've put my credit cards on my phone so that if I'm out, I can, you know, press a button on my phone and tap it against a terminal. But even with that, I have never once left home without the physical cards on me because I yeah. know that that is the real card, not the one that exists on the phone. And I, I've met people that, you know, will say, oh, I've, I'll leave my wallet at home. I have it on my phone. And then for whatever reason, it's not working when they get to the store and I've had to pay the bill being the good friend that has the, the physical card there. <laughs> So maybe the joke's on me, but that type of thing is not uncommon here. Anyone who relies on this as a replacement for what is tangible, I, I think, is opening themselves up to huge issues and, and not just security related, but even just outages, battery deaths on phones and so on. Exactly. And when you think of the privacy related aspects, privacy is all about control, personal control relating to the use and disclosure 
of your data. Now, if all this data is out there digitally, unless you have measures like synthetic data, which basically replaces the identical digital identity into synthetic data, which is used in another way, unless you go to dramatic measures like that, your data will be accessed by third parties. I mean, I guarantee it. And that's my enormous concern. And that's a lot of people worried about this too, that it could also be leaked in some way. Somebody else gains access to it, which you have not permitted, you haven't authorized. So we have so much work to do before actually thinking of implementing this. Show me. That's what I want to say to the government. Show I, me. I know you have know brilliant you, minds. I, I know you have to, to leave in a moment, no, but just in okay. closing in. very important. Well, it is. And, and I'll have to ask, are you optimistic that government will answer these questions before pushing a product out? Or do you think it's going to end up being a learn-as-we-go experiment where a lot of the damage has been done by the time they release this thing? Andrew, it can't be the latter because it, it would cost us so much. And I don't mean just physically. The cost in terms of restoring your identity once it's been stolen. Mm -hmm. Oh, my God. And I can tell you this because I was privacy commissioner for three terms in Ontario. It's a nightmare. It's a nightmare for these individuals. You really want to do that to them um, unless you get rid of you know, the great majority of risk. Hire the brilliant minds, the brilliant cryptographers, Bruce Schneier. Um, there's all kinds of Khaled Elimam. We have brilliant minds. Mm -hmm. Let's get the best and make sure this is as strong as possible. And don't touch it until you do that because you're gonna cause a lot of harm. And that's the last thing this government should be doing. Yeah, and the cautionary tale, I think, was in Australia. Was it Australia where identity theft spiked when digital ID came in? Absolutely. And, and who's surprised by that? Of course it's going to spike because they didn't take all the unbelievably strong measures you need to take. And I'm not suggesting that's easy to do, but you have to do it or you hold off on this until you can do it. You don't just jump into this. It is, it is nonsense, utter nonsense to jump into this. And Kabuki, and thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate it. My pleasure, as always. Thank you. All right. That was Dr. Ann Kavukian, formerly the Information and Privacy Commissioner of Ontario, now the uh, Toronto Metropolitan University Head of the uh, Privacy by Design Center of Excellence. And I, I believe if you say Ryerson, it's a hate crime, but that's uh, Toronto Metropolitan University. That's uh, Ryerson, uh, like I said. But uh, that, that's my silent, my, my, well, it's not so silent of a protest, but my little protest is call it Ryerson when I can, but, uh, or just don't acknowledge it sometimes. But uh, Anne is one of the good ones, and I, I'm glad she can came on. And yeah, the Australia case, I should actually get someone from Australia on the show about this because the Aussie case is fascinating. They literally put in place digital ID and privacy theft went uh, went right up. They had a huge issue and they also had, I, there was one story I found here where a data theft victim service, which I don't even think we have in Canada, had pointed out that Australia is fueling cybercrime uh, by putting so much data online. And they essentially just make this big giant repository for data. Uh, whereas, you know, you used to, if you wanted to steal someone's identity, have to go through the work of doing it on an individual level. Whereas now it can happen in aggregate. And you, you need not look further than these massive data breaches where if you use, I think it's Google Chrome that does it, the browser, every now and then you'll get an alert that says your password has been found in some leaked um, trove of passwords. And I always get so worried. And then I look at it and it's like my uh, password for my Neopets account that I had when I was in grade six or something like that. I'm like, you know, if someone wants to hack into my, you know, however many decades old account and play Neopets in my name, I guess they can. But the I, I'm pretty diligent now 
Uh, but there, there are some boomers that are like, what the hell is Neopets? But uh, anyway, you don't need to know. The point is that if you want to hack my Neopets account, you have my permission. If you want to hack my old MySpace page, I, didn't, I don't even know if I ever had MySpace, but I'm sure that password's been uh, leaked. And if you can hack it and find my password, let me know the password because then I can log in and deactivate the account and uh, see what MySpace Tom has been up to. He was the guy you used to automatically be the friend with on, on MySpace. This is like a 90s nostalgia edition of the Andrew Lawton Show for... Uh, I'm not even a 90s kid, but I think it's I'm, I'm late 80s. So I'm sort of aligning with a lot of the uh, 90s kids. But nevertheless, the reason I bring all this up and it's important is because when your password exists online, when your identity exists online, you're putting it in a way that can be accessible to those who are uh, nefarious in their intentions. Uh, there's a, a town near me, I believe, I can't remember if it was St. Thomas or Central Elgin. I think it might've been Central Elgin where the entire town IT division was like taken hostage by, I believe they were Russian hackers or something like that. And literally they couldn't get it back. They, they could not get it back. It took weeks. And when Indigo got hacked, uh, it took them weeks to get back up. So we're, we're not talking about, you know, people that are unable to protect their identity here in theory. We're talking about, you know, institutions that have uh, a fair bit of money that they can put towards cybersecurity that still gets sidelined by these things. So if you think that the government will protect your digital ID just because it says it's taking privacy seriously. You are sorely mistaken. I started off earlier talking about the media news and we were, uh, the problem with live is that sometimes the, the guest doesn't come in when you think they're going to come in and you have to get creative with timing. And just when I had sort of come down to, okay, I'm just going to do this other segment, then uh, Anne popped on and we were happy to have her. But uh, to bring it up again, Bell has laid off 1,300 people. They have closed six radio stations, and one of them is uh, the radio station I mentioned in London, Ontario, CJBK News Talk 1290. And it was unfortunate because you could see this coming from a mile away. And, and I have a, a great deal of nostalgia for AM radio. I uh, got my start in media working for an AM radio station in London, not this one. I had gotten my start in, in interesting, being interested in politics and media by listening to talk radio, by listening to AM talk radio from Detroit, notably, and then eventually listening online. And, and all of this was crucial. But AM radio has been going the way of the dodo bird for years. We uh, get these stories every now and then where car manufacturers are not going to be putting AM radios in after a certain point. It is expensive. It's uh, difficult. And more importantly, it is just the way of the past that there's no two ways about it. And that doesn't mean that the content itself is dead. And, and this is where I find the media discourse in Canada tends to be it, it tends to be a little bit off from where it needs to be because people focus on medium instead of focusing on the message. And I know Marshall McLuhan's whole thing is that the medium is the message, but I don't think that's entirely the case because uh, the reason talk radio was good was not because there was anything special about the AM band five minutes ago. The reason talk radio was so powerful in the last 20 years is because talk radio offered a conversation that people weren't getting anywhere else. And that was so crucial. And there was a reason that I love talk radio because it was the irreverent place that you could actually have real conversations. And when talk radio in Canada started dying, it was not because of the AM band. It was because the companies that ran talk radio stations started running them in the ground, into the ground, taking away the very essence of what made talk radio great. And I'm not just talking about firing me. I mean, my old company, Chorus, went through a conservative purge where they got rid of all of the conservative voices over the span of a few years. And uh, then Charles Adler, they uh, just managed to just get rid of his conservatism. They uh, didn't have to get rid of him initially. 
And uh, Charles Adler is a casualty of, I think, what media itself has gone to in Canada, where this, you know, one sort of conservative firebrand truth teller uh, just becomes this woke loser. And I think that's the story of a lot of Canadian media stations. And it's quite unfortunate. And it's not about the individual people that work for them. It's that these outlets lost the relationship with their audiences by design in these corporate boardrooms that were so disconnected from the real world on the ground. And I take no delight in people losing their jobs. I, I know that there are a, a bunch of people that are, you know, all giddy on Twitter because Glenn McGregor was laid off from CTV today. I've had a few run-ins with Glenn McGregor. Most of them have not been the most pleasant, but I, you know, met him uh, in, when was it? It was the, when I was in Alberta uh, for the Alberta election, I, you know, said hi to him, shook his hand and uh, there was no ill will there. And, uh, you know, I could take whatever issues I want with his content, but I don't delight in someone at any age, certainly not someone in their, I assume he's in his you know, early 50s or something, losing their job and, and having to, to pivot. And, and I think it's, it's unfortunate. And I, I don't want to celebrate it. And I don't want other people to celebrate it. I mean, you're going to do what you're going to do. And that's your, your right as individuals. But I think that we need to stop trying to fit this into a narrative that is something other than what it is. This is not, you know, greedy corporations. This is not uh, some situation where capitalism is the problem. This is an issue of the need to come up with a new business model for Canada, for media, that aligns with what audiences want. And when you look at trust in media, which has been continuing to decline, the reason for that is not capitalism. The reason for that is not what corporations are doing in the, their corporate interests. The reason is that the content that is being pushed on these outlets is often not what it should be. And I, I know that's a generalization, and I, I'm not trying to say that that's going to be true for every newspaper, TV station, radio station across the country. But in generalities, in generalities, I think that's what's happening here. And the talk radio example is the most notable because podcasts are doing now what talk radio used to do. So the issue is needing to pivot. And I, I'm, I'm sorry, it's very expensive to run a talk radio station relative to how it is to run a podcast where th this microphone, which is one of the very same models you'll see in broadcast studios is I think $400. Um, but I don't have a transmitter. I don't have an antenna. I don't have a uh, giant uh, studio, a giant IT division, a giant operation. We've got one producer who helps on in this show. We have a couple of people behind the scenes. Uh, most of, well, actually all of what you hear me say is, is what I decide to say. And there's a reason that this is a form of media that's growing. And the traditional delivery is dying. But it's also not, and I guess this is critical here, it's not just about the technology and it's not just about the medium, it's about the content. And, and while my heart breaks for people who have lost their jobs, I think the only constructive way to solve this problem is by talking about the business models themselves and talking about the content, talking about the substance, which is just as important, if not more important than the message. Because if people want to hear it, there's a market for it. With that, I will say farewell to you today. We'll be back on Friday with more of Canada's most irreverent talk show here on True North. This is The Andrew Lawton Show. Thank you, God bless, and good day to you all. Thanks for listening to The Andrew Lawton Show. Support the program by donating to True North at www.tnc.news.